wise men are uh, commonly a part of the Christmas story. Um, shepherds, angels, Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus, and of course, you know, the, the wise men. No nativity scene is complete without them. In fact, that's where this came. There is the nativity scene in the lobby is one wise man short because he's hanging out with me today. Um, you know, because it's, it's just, it's part of Christmas. How can you have a nativity scene and baby Jesus without the wise men, right? Um, and there's three of them in our nativity scenes because there were three wise men, correct? Yeah, you were paying attention last week. There might have been three. There may have been more. We know that there were three gifts, so we often um, assume there were three wise men. Um, but however many there were, we know that they were part of the Christmas story, right? It's another trick question. They were not. Um, they actually weren't there at the birth of Jesus, even though we include them there in our little manger scenes. Uh, most scholars agree that they most likely didn't actually show up and make their way to Jesus until he was about a year to two years old. And so the wise men didn't worship, show up to worship and bow down to baby Jesus. They showed up to worship and bow down to toddler Jesus, which is a completely different picture, right? We think they're, they're worshiping baby Jesus and Mary's holding him and they're like, we worship. And he's just, he's cooing, like his babies coo and they're cute, right? But no, they show up. And they think Jesus is between about a year to two years old. Anybody who's ever been around a one-year-old to two-year-old, they're, they're not just like sitting quietly. They're like, ah, like crazy. Wait, Christy and I, we have a, a child this age right now, Paisley. It will be two in March. And so like she goes, some of you see her after church, like she'll be just like running circles around here. And so I'm wondering, like when they show up and they find Jesus to, to, to worship him, was he like running around the house like crazy? Or was he doing this shy like toddler thing and like hiding behind Mary's leg? I, I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but this is how my brain thinks. And so they show up and, and Jesus is there and they come to worship him. Um, the gospel of Matthew records this for us. This is Matthew uh, chapter 2. says that uh, when they enter the house, that they, uh, they, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling down to their knees, they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. And these are the gifts that we're told they bring. They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If you were uh, with us last week, we said those are some strange gifts. Like, that's not exactly normal for a baby shower to be like, here you go. Although we, we said we'd all be very appreciative if somebody brought gold for a baby shower. Um, but gold, frankincense, and myrrh, kind of strange gifts. They were uh, very, very valuable, uh, and they were also really practical. They would have been useful for the family. But more than just being valuable, more than being practical, they had a, a spiritual component. There was theological significance to the gifts that were brought. That the, the, they, they foreshadowed what would happen. They pointed to who this child was, who this child would be, and the things that would happen because of this child. Uh, we had said that, listen, like the, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the people that bring us the account of the life of Jesus, they don't do anything on accident. Like, they didn't just like, oh, I just accidentally wrote this. Like, I just was just recording what happened. They are very smart. They are very intentional about what they say, about how they say it. They're not just interested in doing history, but they're doing theology. They don't just want to tell us what happened. They want to tell us what it means. And so as Matthew records his account of the, of the Christmas story and what happens surrounding the birth of, of, of Jesus, he includes this detail that the wise men brought these gifts. And he makes sure to point that out because they are communicating something. They're communicating something very specific uh, that was foreshadowed, that was foretold through what we call the Old Testament, but it's the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, kind of the backstory to the Jesus story. And so we, we read that they brought gold, uh, which we're going to talk about next week that points to the fact that the Jesus is king. 
We read that they brought frankincense. We talked about frankincense last week. Uh, frankincense was used as an incense that was burnt in the, the temple uh, that the priests would offer, and the smoke would go up, and it would represent the prayers of the people going up to God. And so in that way, it points to Jesus as the high priest, um, the one who has atoned for our sins so that we can be right with God, uh, the one who is interceding on our behalf. He's at the right hand of God. He's like the representative for, for us before God. Uh, and that he also understands us. We read that like, you know, he, he went through the entire human experience. Jesus knew what it was to feel pain, to feel suffering, to feel hunger, to be completely human. And so he's our high priest who has atoned for us, is interceding for us, and he understands us. And so we get this beautiful promise that we looked at last week, that because of that, we can go before the throne of God. We can, we can be in the presence of God, and we can make our requests known, and we'll receive mercy and grace when we need it. That's this idea of frankincense. Jesus is our high priest. But today, we are going to talk about myrrh. Myrrh. I want everybody to say myrrh. myrrh. <laughs> Isn't it so fun? Like, because you, honestly, we kind of sound like a herd of cattle when we do that. <laughs> like, myrrh. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's a funny word, okay? Myrrh. Uh, we're going to talk about myrrh. Um, and specifically kind of the significance of it, as I said. Myrrh is, I've got a little piece here. It's going to be hard for you to see, uh, but you're going to get a piece of myrrh on your way out today, just like you got a piece of frankincense if you were here last week. Again, I would, I would invite you to just kind of keep these somewhere where you can see them this year to be reminded of uh, exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. Um, but myrrh, also, by the way, if you notice a, something, something smells different about church today, there is some myrrh essential oils being diffused in the back. So you're like, what is that? That's myrrh that you're smelling. And if you like it, great. And if you don't, sorry, you're kind of stuck with it for like the next 40 minutes. Um, but it's all good. So myrrh, it's, it's a resin that comes from a tree. A resin that comes from a tree and it kind of hardens and crystallizes and you get these little things. It was used for different, uh, different things in the time of Jesus. Uh, it had some medicinal uses. It was used in creating like anointing oils that they would pour on people. But the primary use of myrrh uh, in biblical times was it was used in the embalming process. Myrrh was used to prepare a body for burial. That when someone died, they would pack the body with myrrh. We, we actually read in, uh, in the New Testament after Jesus is crucified, um, Joseph of Arimathea, this rich guy, comes and takes his body. He's, he's got a tomb that he's going to give to Jesus, and he prepares the body for burial, and we read that he brings like 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Myrrh was used to prepare a body for burial. So it's a symbol of death. It's a symbol of burial. It's a symbol of suffering. And so in Matthew gives us this account and says one of the gifts that the wise men brought was myrrh. He wants us to understand and to see Jesus as the suffering servant. He wants us to see Jesus as the, the perfect, spotless lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the one who would suffer on behalf of his people. And so what I want to do today is look at a passage of scripture that's found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Um, it's Isaiah 53. If you've got a Bible, you can go there. Uh, if not, it's going to be up on the screen as well. Isaiah 53 is this passage that's known as the suffering servant that, that describes that when uh, the, this one that the people have been waiting for, this Messiah, when he shows up, that, that part of who he was would be the suffering servant and that Jesus comes to be that servant. But before we dive into Isaiah, uh, I want to just kind of point a couple of things out. You know, we, we talk about this, but I want us to understand uh, that, that everything, when we encounter the Bible and the biblical story, it is all about Jesus. 
What we call the Old Testament was the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew Scriptures. It is the backstory. That's where Isaiah is found. It is the backstory. It is God's people, the nation of Israel, who is the backstory, filling in the details, filling in the gaps, and pointing to what God was going to do in the world through the person of Jesus. Uh, and so everything that, that we read is moving the story in that direction. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. We have the Gospels that uh, kind of announce and describe what happened when he showed up on the earth. And then we have what comes after that, Acts and the letters that are like, here's what it looked like as the Jesus movement launched. But it's all about him. It's all one story that leads to him. And, and granted, sometimes it's a weird story. It's kind of crazy. It's hard to understand. Uh, there's an Old Testament Bible scholar by the name of John Walton who's famous for saying the Bible was written, um, it's for us, but it's not to us, meaning it's for us. We can learn from it. We discover who we are, who God is, what's wrong with the world, what the story is. It's for our benefit, but it was not written to us, to people living in you know, 2021 uh, in, uh, in America. It was written to ancient peoples, and it spoke the language of the world that, lay, that they lived in. And so we got to kind of do some work to decipher that and to work through that, but we get, once we do that, we see, oh my gosh, this whole thing is pointing to the beauty and the person of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at one of these Old Testament passages, and what's so amazing about it, Isaiah, as he describes the suffering servant, what he is writing, Isaiah is written uh, somewhere in the 8th century B.C., so about 700 B.C., 700 plus years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah uh, writes this thing that accurately portrays what Jesus would go through, what he would suffer, and why he would suffer. And maybe, you know, you're a little bit skeptical, and you're like, okay, but how do we know that? You know, I'm, I tend to be a kind of skeptical person. I like, give me, give me the facts. I want to see evidence. I'm like logic-based. Like, how do I know that what uh, is being written, you know, you say Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus, but how do we actually know that? Couldn't have someone come along much later and like added this in to be like, hey, see, it points to Jesus. It's all about it's all about him. How do we know it's not just made up? Um, because that is kind of, uh, that is a popular level way of, of thinking about the Bible. And what I mean by that is if you spend much time like going into internet culture as it relates to the Bible or Christianity, there's some uh, interesting memes, all right? There's some interesting message boards. There's some YouTube rants of people like, hey, the Bible's not reliable and it's this and that and that. And this like, this was made up after the fact. Uh, and I say that's kind of a popular level thing because as you read people or listen to people who actually, like, this is their life's work to study ancient texts and ancient writings and understand how that works in the flow of history. None of them think that because that's not the way that these things work. They know that that's uh, not exactly true. So that's kind of a, a popular common way of thinking. But more than that, there is actual, like, you can actually hold a copy of Isaiah. Actually, you can't hold it. I take that back because it's, like, behind glass. It would probably disintegrate if you touched it. But there is a physical copy of Isaiah that predates Jesus. And so before we get into the text, we're going to geek out over just some, um, some historical stuff for a minute because this is important to know. This is uh, very uh, important. So have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Hands up. Who's ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? About half of us. Okay. And if you're like, my hand's not up, that's okay because honestly, the people that put your hands up, you're kind of weird. All right. Not that many people probably know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you do, good for you. Uh, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are like the most significant development uh, in biblical archaeology and translation work in the modern era. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they began being discovered in the late 1940s, and I know for us that seems like 1940s was a long time ago, uh, but in the terms of archaeology and human history, that's like less than five seconds ago. Like, that 1940s just happened. And so in the, in the late 1940s, in the area of Qumran, which I believe today is like the West Bank, 
There's a kid who throws a, a rock into a cave, and they hear the sound of pots breaking. They go in to investigate, and they see, like, there's these pots, and there's these pieces, and within them, there's all these different pieces of paper and these fragments and these scrolls. And so they start doing some digs in the area, and they discover other caves, and eventually they find all of these scrolls and these pieces of writing. And they all date back to roughly the first century B.C., so plus or minus 50 years, so maybe 150 BC, up into the time of Jesus, and they found a lot of things in these scrolls. They found fragments of the Old Testament, and they also found some community rules. Uh, this was, these, these, were, these, these pieces of writing were put together. They were kept by a religious group of people who kind of lived out in the wilderness. They were like, let's kind of separate from the rest of society. This is how we'll worship God. We'll do our own thing. And so they had their scriptures, the Jewish scripture, and then they also had like their rules for life. This is how we do this and do that. And here's how we live, and here's the rules for this community. And they give incredible insight into the world at the time of Jesus and to Bible translation. There was some thought um, that was in scholarship, that in discovering these uh, texts, that they were going to undermine the Bible. The thinking was, we found these scrolls that are so incredibly old, now we'll be able to compare our Bible translations, and it's going to show that they're they're just full of errors. Because most of our translations of what's called the the Old Testament is based on what's called the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text. So we have our Bibles in English or whatever other languages you know you may have it in, but they were originally written in primarily Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New, although there are some other languages as well. And so we have to have a source text. The primary source text for the Old Testament is the Masoretic, which dates back to about the 900s AD. So 800 plus years after Jesus, after the launch of the church, is where our source for the Old Testament came from. And people are like, well, listen, the Old Testament is like, it's the foundation, it's the backstory to the Jesus story. So it's 800 years after that. How do we know it's not been messed with? How do we know that we can trust it? And so when the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered, people are like, so this is, gonna, this is a game changer. It's going to undermine this. We're going to find all of these errors because we have something that's, that predates it by 1,000 years. We're going to be able to have something to compare it to. And actually the opposite happened. In the translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, scholars found that what we had as our Old Testaments based on the Masoretic text was incredibly reliable. It was incredibly accurate that over, even though, though there was a thousand year uh, time gap between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text, they were virtually unchanged. The most of the differences were uh, grammar, were spelling, were those kind of things, but nothing in the main uh, idea of the Old Testament had changed. But they were incredibly, incredibly reliable. And there was uh, pieces or um, fragments of every Old Testament book except for the book of Esther, and there was one scroll that was in its entirety. There was one Old Testament book that was contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have the entire thing, and it's the scroll of Isaiah. And it dates, the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah dates to 125 B.C., and so maybe you're like skeptical, like, I don't know, like, it was this really predicted 700 years before Jesus, and I understand that skepticism, because that can be hard to believe, but like historically verifiable, you can see it under glass in some museum somewhere, we have a scroll of Isaiah that predates Jesus by 100 plus years, where Isaiah describes the suffering servant. And in this passage, he lays out um, the problem with the world, the problem with humanity, and what the solution is. And so we're going to look at most of this chapter. I want to look first at verse 6, because that's going to lay out the problem, and then we're going to kind of work through these verses. So Isaiah 53, starting in verse 6, here's what we read. Uh, Isaiah says, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own 
way. We've all gone astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. And so in his immediate context, he's talking, he says we, he's talking about himself and, and the people that he's a part of. He's talking about the nation of Israel, that they were supposed to be God's chosen people. He, God had said, okay, I'm gonna, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles. You're going to be my set apart people. You're going to be a, a nation of priests. Like I'm going to do something for the whole world through you, but you are going to be different. And yet they had turned away. They had turned their back on God. They'd broken the covenant promises. And the nation of Israel, who is supposed to be set apart, ends up looking just like all the nations around them, worshiping foreign gods, and they, they turn to, to violence and power and uh, abusing people and neglecting the poor. Like, they end up looking like everybody else. And so because of that, they're staring down the reality of exile. They're going to they're have to leave the promised land. They're going to be carried into exile in Babylon. And so Isaiah is saying, when he says, we all want to stray like sheep, his immediate context is his initial audience. But it's also true in a broader context of all of humanity, that this is humanity's problem throughout history, that all of us have, we've gone astray, we've kind of gone our own way, we've done our own thing, that we've left God's path to follow our own. This is what the, the biblical idea of sin is. In the Hebrew, the word is hata, and the Greek, it's hamartia, and both carry the same idea. It means to miss the mark. It was a term that was often used in like archery. You, know, you, have a, you have a target that you are aiming at, and you're trying to hit that target, but you know, you're wide right, you're wide left, you're up, you're down, you've missed the mark. He says all of us have missed the mark, this idea of sin, and it gets uh, translated different ways throughout the passage we're going to be in. It's sin, iniquity, transgression, rebellion, but it's this idea where, where God in the very beginning lays out what it means to be human. Here's how you live, here's how you flourish, here's how you thrive as a human being. This is what you're made for. So God creates this world, he packs it full of potential, he brings beauty and order out of the chaos, and he sets people in the middle of it, and he says, now here's, here's your assignment, fill this earth, rule over it, subdue it, and that means to rule and to reign as the image bearers of God. Take the beauty, they were located in the central place, this, the Garden of Eden, he says, take the beauty that you see here and carry that to the entire world. You will be my representatives, you will be my image bearers to all of creation." But they were called to do that with God's definition of good and evil, using his definition of wisdom, of right and wrong. So he's like, stay on this path. If you stay on this path, you will be what I intend for humanity, and you will bring beauty and flourishing, and humanity goes, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go on my own path. I want to do my own thing. I want to blaze my own trail. And man, human history has been one long story of that playing out, of us going, I want to do my own thing not God's way for humanity. And it's led to death and destruction and pain and suffering. He says, no, no, no I, I want you to stay on the path. If you, vary, if, you, if, you, if you stray off the path, bad things happen. And so we read kind of throughout, as the storyline goes along, God says, it's, it's portrayed in this idea of you know, the, the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of good and evil. It says, if you eat it, if you, if you define what's right and wrong on your own, it will lead to death. And so physical death enters into creation, yes, but more than that, that everything is touched by death. Our emotions, our relationships, the way we view the world, the way we see other people, the way we see ourselves, our relationship with God. It's like, man, death and destruction has entered into all of it. And Jesus comes along later and he says, talking about the path, he says, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. There's a way to be human that leads to life and flourishing. And so often, 
So often we miss it. And so we, we go off the path, and God's like, no, 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 don't do that. I want you on the path that leads to life, not the one that leads to destruction. Stay on the path. My family and I, one of the kind of traditions that we have around this time of year, um, Christmas time, after Christmas, that, that lull between Christmas and New Year's, ever since it's come out on DVD, that's right, old school, uh, we watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy every year this time of year, and now also the Hobbit, since the Hobbit's come out, Lord of the Rings is way better, but we watch the Hobbit first because, you know, we got to be chronological with it, uh, and so we started watching that over the past couple of weeks, we, we've made it through the Hobbit, we haven't started Lord of the Rings yet, but in the, in the first Hobbit, there's this scene where the Hobbits, or the Bilbo the Hobbit and the dwarves are getting ready to go through Mirkwood, and Gandalf, if you've seen the movie, he's giving them his warning, he's like, stay on the path, no matter what you do, because Mirkwood is this place that's full of destruction and evil, and there's a sickness, there's a poison among it, and he says, the only way you're going to get to the other side of that is if you stay on the path. Don't stray off the path. And they do, and it's bad, and the, and, and the fat dwarf bomber falls in the water, and like, that's a picture of us. It's like, oh no, like we're infected by this because we've gotten off the path. He says, all of us have gone astray like sheep. We've all turned our, to our own way. Now, when, when he says we're sheep, that's like, that's, that's the way that, that, that God often refers to his people throughout scripture. It's not a compliment, okay? It's not like, God's not like, you're my sheep because you're all soft and adorable. Like, I just want to snuggle with you. That's not why he says we're sheep. Sheep, um, I don't know, maybe you, you are familiar with sheep, maybe you're not. They're not like the, the, the animal that you want to strive to be. It's like, man, I wish I was a sheep. If my spirit animal is a sheep, okay, they're, they're weak, they're defenseless, they have no way of defending themselves, no claws, no, no teeth, like no, no camouflage. Um, and I learned this this week in my research, this is intense research, I didn't know this, but sheep's backs are very flat, are, are we aware of this? So flat that if they get rolled over on their backs, they cannot get up. Like, they, without somebody coming and physically rolling them over, they will die on their backs going, Nyeh. like, they're just stuck there. They're, they're, they're defenseless, they're weak, they're witless, they're not very smart animals. They do not think for themselves. They, they will follow each other into danger. There's a story from 2005 in Turkey where 1,500 sheep followed each other off a cliff. Like one went and the next and the next and the next until 1,500 sheep followed each other off the, off the cliff. You can Google it, and I'm not making this up. The first 400 died. The rest, yeah, the rest did not because there was the world's biggest pillow at the bottom of the cliff. And it was just like, like, they're, like they're, they're, they are not very smart. They're wayward. They wander. They go from place to place, from danger to danger. They need a shepherd to come along and say, no, this way, sheep, this way, sheep. Um, I don't know if, if you saw this, but there was a video that came out earlier this year that went viral that perfectly describes what a sheep is like. Um, so you can check that out. Yep, that is a sheep. Like that, that is what sheep. That's what sheep is. That's what sheep are in a snapshot. And God's like, hey, by the way, that's you. Okay, like you're just like I'm just doing my life ah into the ditch. Like that is the story of our lives, doing our own thing over and over and over towards the path of destruction. And so we're like, man, if I'm on this path of destruction, there's death, there's destruction. Ultimately, that doesn't lead anywhere good. How do I get off of that? How do I get rescued from that? I'm a sheep. I apparently can't do it myself. I need someone to pull me off of that path that leads to destruction. And Isaiah unpacks what that looks like in this passage about the suffering servant that ultimately is Jesus. So let's jump back to verse 3 and work our way through this. It says that he was despised and rejected 
by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone that people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. And so as Jesus is walking this earth and the buzz is kind of starting to happen, like, hey, maybe this is the guy, maybe this is the one that we're waiting for. And then he goes to the cross where he bears our sickness, where he bears our pain, where he bears our sin. And Jesus hanging on the cross, the religious people of that day thought that was evidence that he wasn't the one who was predicted to come because of the shame of someone who's hung on a cross. Because of the pain, because that, that, was, that was reserved only for the worst of humanity. That was only for the worst criminals and the worst rebels. And certainly, if this was God's Messiah, he would not await that fate. That, 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 he, that, that was someone who was not under God's blessing. That was someone who was under God's curse. We regarded him as afflicted, as struck down by God. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. And he was crushed because of our iniquities. And the punishment for our peace was on him. We are healed by his wounds. It says we, we were, we, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was punished, he was wounded. Why? Because of what he did? No. Because of what we did. Because of what humanity has done from the very beginning, gone our own way and unleashed destruction and pain on the earth. It says the punishment for our peace or the punishment that brought us peace was on him. The, the Hebrew word peace is the word shalom and it means more than just a lack of conflict. It's, it's the presence of wholeness. It means things are whole and as they are supposed to be. That when our rebellion happened, when sin entered into the world, our wholeness was destroyed. That there was a breaking that happened in humanity's relationship with God. There was a breaking that happened in humanity's relationship with one another. There was a breaking that happened even within our own selves and, and the, the, what goes on within our hearts and the dialogue that we have, that we are broken and the punishment that brought wholeness to us. Jesus carried that we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He did not open his mouth. There's, a, there's this picture that Jesus, as he's, as he's falsely accused, as he's standing before the religious leaders and they're making all these accusations, he does not stand up for himself. As he's before Pilate, who has, who's the one who has the authority to say, yes, crucify him. And he says, give an answer, like, say something, say anything. He was silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was pierced, he was crushed, he was punished, he was wounded. 700 years before it happened, Isaiah says, this is what it will look like when the promised one comes. And Jesus lived and he ministered, and he did all those things, and then he died. He was falsely accused. He was betrayed by his friends. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was stripped naked. It was a, a sign of shame. People who faced crucifixion, they, they were stripped naked so that people could see them and look upon their shame and laugh at them and mock them and spit on them. He was beaten so badly that 
that in another passage of Isaiah right before this one, it says that, that, that he was barely recognizable as human because he was so badly beaten. And in that condition, he would be forced to carry um, the, the crossbar, the, the, the horizontal section of the cross, which weighed about 100 pounds on his open back because of the beating, carry that 650 yards down what's known as the way of suffering to Golgotha, where he'd be crucified. It was not a quick way of death. It was meant to inflict as much pain as possible, as much suffering as possible, as much humiliation as possible, as they'd be hung naked, nails, seven-inch nails driven through the wrists and through the feet, and you'd be put up on the cross. And it wasn't, it's not like our depictions where the cross is like way up high for, for you to look at. It would be just barely off the ground. This, this psychological aspect where it's like, I'm almost on the ground, but I'm not, where other people could walk up to you and look at you and mock you and spit in your face for everyone to see a public disgrace, a public humiliation, and you would hang there and die until you most likely suffocated to death. Because the posture of having your arms stretched out and all of your weight pulling down, it closes off the airflow to your lungs. And so crucifixion victims would have to push up on the nail that's in their feet to gasp for breath and do that over and over and over for hours until they died. And the physical pain, if that wasn't enough, it was actually the spiritual pain that was the most painful for Jesus as the weight of every, think of every piece of just evil and sin and atrocity. Think of everything that humanity has done throughout history. I mean, think of, think of the blood that has been spilled by humans just in the 20th century. Now multiply that over all of history, and all of that is on Jesus. And God looks upon him and turns his face away because he can't look upon sin. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? It says he breathes his last. He says, it's finished. It's finished. It's done. It's over. It's accomplished. And the suffering of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus is something that happened. That, that, that's, that's the thing that's, that's almost undeniable is that, like, so we have these New Testament documents, the, the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that, that describe the, the suffering of Jesus and New Testament like scholars, those who are followers of Jesus and even those who aren't, those who just study like historical documents say these are incredibly accurate. They're, they're like, they are, the New Testament documents are a unicorn in terms of like ancient, uh, ancient texts. There's nothing like them in terms of the number that we have and the accuracy that they have and the, the historical variability that they have that they point to the way that Jesus suffered. That outside of, of the Bible, there are other contemporaries of Jesus, the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, the Roman senator Tacitus, that, that point to and that talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. We have accounts of Roman crucifixions and the pain that was inflicted, and that this was something that happened. And so even if you're not sure where you're at with faith, like, do I believe this? Do I not believe this? Like, do I believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Do I believe that he rose from the dead? Like, that, that, that all comes down the line. Even if you still have questions about that, the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus is undeniable. It's undeniable. It's a matter of, like, of historically verifiable, this happened to the man named Jesus of Nazareth. And 700 years before it happened, Isaiah said it would. They said it would. He continues on and he says this. He says, the Lord, hold on, I'm, I'm, I'm getting all glitchy up here. Apologize for that.
He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. Who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. When you, to, try, to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Like, that's a hard thing to read, that, that, that God was pleased to crush Jesus in this way. Like, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, that seems harsh. That seems like, how, how do I reconcile a good and loving God with what happened to Jesus? And, and one of the mistakes that we make when reading that is it's hard for us to get our minds around the person of Jesus and the idea of the Trinity, that, that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Like, three distinct people, but one God. And so it says that the Lord was pleased to crush him. We have to understand what's being said is that God was pleased to bring this upon himself. This wasn't a suffering, this wasn't an affliction that God said, okay, you person over there, Jesus, I'm going to put this on you. But in doing that, he's saying, I'm going to put this on myself. I'm going to, to bear the weight of this suffering, of this pain, because of what it would accomplish. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied, the resurrection. By this knowledge, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as portion. He will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. He willingly submitted to death. That, that the infinite, all-knowing, creator God of the universe, before, the, before time and space began, the plan was always the cross. The plan was always the self-sacrificial love of God, that he willingly submitted to death. So he, he willingly was counted among the rebels, among the criminals, so that he could rescue the rebels. That he was counted as a rebel, as a criminal, as one afflicted, as one cursed, even though he wasn't, so that he could save those who were. Counted a rebel to save the rebels, rebels like you and rebels like me, rebels like all of humanity who said, God, I know that your way leads to life, but forget that. I want to do my own thing. He's the suffering servant. He's the lamb of God, the one that would take away the sins of the world. See, that is, this is the, one of the core things, the core idea that sets Christianity apart from every other uh, world religion, every other faith tradition, every other worldview, that at the center of the Christian faith, there is the bloody death of an innocent one, the bloody death of the very God himself, the one that we worship, the sacrificial death and love of God to say, I know everything has gone crazy, I know that everything is broken, I know that everything is wrong, and this was never a part of my original plan, and I didn't cause it, but I'm going to fix it. At the center of the faith is our God saying, I will die for you. I will die for you. All throughout, you know, the Old Testament specifically, we see this, this pointed to from 
the animal sacrificial system and the high priest and the temple to Isaiah talking about the, uh, the, the suffering servant to the celebration of Passover and the slaughtering of the Passover lamb. All of it was a foreshadowing. All of it was pointing to the cross of Jesus, the most radical sacrifice and display of love ever seen. And so the wise men, they come to Jesus when this child is born, when this promised one is finally born, when, 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 when things go into motion of like this is God showing up in the world, doing what he promised to do, and the wise men show up and they bring myrrh because it's a symbol of death. It's a symbol of suffering because it was used to prepare people for burial. And it was a gift that was brought to Jesus because this child would live to die. It foreshadowed what was to come, that the perfect lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a shock. Jesus knew that this is where the story was going. Jesus knew this is where his life was going, and he spoke of it often. One example is in Luke's gospel. We read this. It's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and be raised on the third day. That no one had any idea what he was talking about. He would, he would say things like this over and over and over again and be like, you know, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. The Son of Man is going to suffer many things. I've not come to serve, but to be, I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He says, the Son of Man, talking of himself, would suffer, be killed, and be raised. He knew this is where the story was going. And then he says, And if anyone wants to follow after me, if anyone wants to be my follower, my disciple, if anyone wants to step into the kingdom of God and what God is doing and what he's done in the world and and to get off of that path that leads to destruction and on the one that leads to life, and if you want to experience life and goodness and flourishing, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He says, here's what it looks like to be my disciple. It's not... You know, I'm following you, so my life's going to be awesome all the time, and I'm never going to have any problems ever. He says, no, 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 that's not, that's not the case. He says, it's not like if you want to be my follower, you just pray a prayer once and say, I'm good with God, and I do whatever I want the rest of my life. He says, here's what it looks like to be my follower, is you follow in the path of Jesus. You deny yourself. We, we die to ourselves and say, listen, my, life, my life's not about me. My life's not about me. I, my life is about him. It's about Jesus. And it's about serving the people around me. It's not about what I want and what I need and what's best for me. He says, deny yourself. And the way you do that is you take up your cross daily. Take up your cross. Die to yourself. I think it's interesting that he says, take up your cross, not his. Jesus has already carried his cross. He was the only one that could carry that. We don't carry his cross. Like there, there is a cross that you have to carry yourself. You die to yourself. You carry a cross. But, but listen, on the other side of the cross is resurrection. That Jesus carried his cross, and yes, it led to pain, and yes, it led to his death, but it led to his resurrection. He says, now, now follow me in that way of life. Yeah, yes, you have to die to yourself, and you got to deny yourself, and there's some things that are going to be hard, but on the other side of it is resurrection life. And that's not like pie in the sky someday when we die, we're going to go to heaven. But in the, in the here and now, when we carry our cross, when we follow Jesus, when we deny ourselves, we, experience, we, we are back on the life that leads to flourishing. We're filled up with those things that we long for, for joy and peace and hope and goodness and kindness. We, we, we experience what it means to live and have life more abundantly and life to the fullest. He says, yeah, there's a, there's a cross on the front end of that. But on the other side, there's resurrection and there's flourishing. That Jesus isn't 
isn't a hobby, right? He's not just an add-on. It's Christmas time, and we're like, yay, Jesus, and this is great, and baby Jesus, and he's kind of part of my traditions along with my, you know, my nativity and the presents and the cookies, and I go to grandma's house and, and all of these different things, and I have Jesus kind of on the side of that. He's not a part of that. He's not just a tradition. He's everything. As it's Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. If we, if we stare into the manger and all we see is a baby, but we don't see the Lamb of God, we don't see a suffering servant, we've actually missed the most beautiful and profound picture of the God that we say we worship, the God who would sacrifice himself. He came to suffer and die for your sin and for mine, to give up everything so we could have everything. 